Flying in lift with no engine, interfacing with Mother Nature, the peace of the sound, yet it's exhilarating. You know, we're in Los Angeles, we're in the desert floor over the over the mountains, you know, bringing a veteran up to 12,000 feet in lift, and then you can see the ocean and Catalina Island peeking out. Uh, those are life-changing moments. Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. My name is Chuck. I'm your host, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 79. Thank you for joining us for another episode. Before we get started, I do want to thank you for listening and continuing to support the podcast. If you haven't already, please hit the subscribe button. If you really want to help the podcast, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. And as always, thank you, those of you that financially continue to support the show. If you like what we are doing and want to help grow the soaring community through podcasting, you can go to patreon.com or on our website, soaringthesky.com, and click the support the show button. You can also sign up for our newsletter, and a lot of you have done that. We hope to launch that very soon. This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in the high desert of Los Angeles County. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its 8th grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD-afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year-round to the general public, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. On this very special episode of the podcast, we talk with Julie Bennett of the Soaring Academy and find out how they are giving back using soaring to help veterans dealing with PTS and other debilitating injuries. We will also hear from some of those veterans and how it has changed their lives. Later on this episode, we hear another soaring tale with Dale, and this one is called Class A Experience. Daniel Sazen will join us for our Tips and Techniques segment as he talks about his latest blog and getting his CFIG rating. He also chats with us about flaps, carbon fiber, and more. All this on Soaring the Sky. Julie Bennett, welcome to Soaring the Sky. So happy to chat with you today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having us, Chuck. Absolutely. Can you tell us who the Soaring Academy is there in Los Angeles and what your role is with the Academy? And then maybe tell us what is the background story and how did you all start your veterans program? The Soaring Academy is a glider flight school and we're based in the high desert of LA County. Uh, We operate, well, since the pandemic, we're operating three days a week, Friday, Saturdays, and Sundays. And we focus on primary training. We do add-on ratings. Um, anybody that wants to come out and experience our amazing lift, we get them in the air. We also do educational rides. And um, we've been in business since January 1st of 2009. And so when we first opened in 2009, my husband, Chris, who runs our ops, Chris Bennett, he was part of the original group who was thinking for the future, what kind of a business, what kind of an organization do we want to be? And so when we first opened, uh, we did not have 501c3 status, nonprofit status from the IRS. So the idea was formed when this small board of directors got together. They were all pilots, all longtime soaring guys. And they thought about 
what do they want to do for the future? Um, they wanted to do something different from a club and they wanted to bring value into the communities that we're in and that we serve. So the veterans was a really natural fit for that idea. So we decided that would be the first mission that we would start with. And, um, the rest is history. So Chris filed for IRS status, a nonprofit status in 2010, I believe. And we received that in the spring of 2011. So it took a while. So you have a Warrior SOAR program. How many veterans have you have flown with you since you started? And how do they hear about the program? How do they get there? Can you tell me about that? So the name of our program, it's is Warrior SOAR. It's a monthly event that we've been running since July of 2011. And the veteran participants find us through veteran organizations like the VA hospitals. So there are several or many VA hospitals in Southern California, and most of them are partners with us. Our original partner, the very first people that bet on us and gave us their trust was actually the Naval Medical Center in San Diego. So they were the first ones that came out with a, a bunch of active duty uh, people in July of 2011. And since that day, we have taken over 1,700 veterans flying, veterans dealing with disabling injuries, PTSD, brain injuries, you know, new prosthetics, polytrauma, and all other forms of invisible wounds. Wow, that is absolutely amazing. Now, what actually happens at your events? So it's an all-day event. Um, our crew arrives first thing in the morning, takes us a while to get going. And depending on how many groups are involved in that particular day's event, they start arriving in a staggered manner. So the first group, let's say they're coming from Long Beach, they might have a quite a drive. They might show up early, maybe 9.30, 10 o'clock. And then the groups begin staggering in so there's welcoming them. We do a briefing where we introduce ourselves and we get to talk about flying and what they're about to experience. We ask them if they have any questions. So for example, we may have blind veterans and that requires a particular type of briefing that might be a little bit different than some other veterans. And sometimes, you know, depending on the group, veterans are, are nervous or they're up walking around the perimeter. Um, we've, we've seen a lot of interesting things over the last 10 years. So we morph the briefing based on the groups that are there. And after the briefing, we start the production. And the day involves flying. That's the main focus of the event. It's an all-volunteer crew. We run about three tow planes, usually five gliders, sometimes six. And we take all the weights of all the participants, the veteran participants, and we pair them up with pilots based on weight and also based on their particular need that day. So for example, if somebody wants a thrill ride, we may put them with a particular pilot who maybe is more um, suited for that. For example, one of our pilots is a, a Vietnam veteran and he flew over 200 missions in Vietnam, fighter pilot. So a lot of the vets love flying with him. We also have you know, every other branch of the military represented in our pilot population. So, you know, let's say somebody is dealing with a brain injury or a prosthetic and we have to use a particular plane because they might not be able to fit in one of the fiberglass ships. Uh, we use the metal ship, the Schweitzer 232. So it just depends who's there and what's happening. And then we load them into the planes, make sure they're comfortable, make sure they can access the pedals and the stick and the pilot does a little bit of his own briefing 
with the veterans and they talk about what they're about to go do and they find out what the veteran has an interest in doing. And then we start the launching and we don't stop until we're done. So it just goes. It's constantly gliders taking off, pilots communicating in the air, landing. And then while veterans are flying, there are other veterans on the ground, videoing landings, talking to people. Um, We give out wing pins. It's a replica of a World War II uh, pin. And we give those to all the veterans after they fly. And usually, uh, well, this is pre the virus, a group from the Air Force stationed down the street from us, debt three of the, uh, from Edwards Air Force Base, for years now, about nine years, they've hosted our monthly barbecue during these events. And they volunteer their time. They have to make it up later that day, but they literally go out and do the grocery shopping. They plan the meal. They deliver it, cook it, including all the beverages. And the veterans really love that because there's a lot of camaraderie this this day. And so part of the fun of this is the flying is the highlight of the day, of course. But then also they're they're doing this in a, in a larger community way. So they're watching each other fly. These people don't know each other. And um, that's really a fun element to it. Uh, and they also find new resources from the different recreation therapists or other veterans who've been through things um, that they can share resources with. So we've heard a lot of really great comments about that as well. Well, it sounds like you have a well-oiled machine now, but I'm sure you had some challenges along the way. What were some of your challenges and how did you get through them? How, How did you build this? That's a great question. Learning and understanding how to effectively and from a therapeutic, but also a business and production standpoint, point, produce these events and keep things moving was really a learning curve. Um, So I'll give you an example. When we first started this 10 years ago with the Naval Medical Center, they were really concerned about us taking pictures and video. Um, We weren't allowed to do any sort of, you know, putting our arms around the veterans or any type of self-promotion. And they, and we had to sign documents to this effect. And, you know, they were, they were worried about this um, because we were building the trust. And so that was interesting and building our volunteer base also trying to discuss from an educational point of view, how best to serve these veterans, but also what is annoying to them. So when you're dealing with trauma And anybody who has a disabling injury, there are usually other complications like PTSD, anxiety, and all sorts of things that are unseen. They call them unseen wounds. So little things like I would, you know, we would have a volunteer show up and they would bring their children with them and they were well-intentioned and they actually took their kids out of school to come and help out. Well, at the end of that particular event, on one of those first occasions, we asked the recreation therapist to you know, to have a chat with the vets on the way home, say, hey, was that annoying having those kids around? And the recreation therapist thought, oh, no, they were fine. It's not it's not that big of a deal. Well, they did take a survey and we did find out it was really annoying to them. So somebody brought a, a pit bull once, not on a leash. I mean, lots of people who just, you know, didn't think about what these repercussions would be. Even comments, you know, comments people would make. So we had to really educate ourselves on polytrauma and dealing with people with anxiety and disabling injuries. And so, you know, another example, 
a veteran would go to get in the glider and they would literally couldn't, they couldn't fit in and couldn't get their leg on the rudder pedal. They literally pull their leg off of their, it's a prosthetic. They pull the prosthetic leg off and hand it to us. So we had to have volunteers who were willing and able to not have a, a reaction to that uh, and just to be there to support, but to have understanding. Also, there were people who with polytrauma and brain injury, we would tell them something. And then a moment later, they would forget what we just said. So we had to have the ability to identify, is this happening right now? So that the pilot isn't saying, you know, well, wait a minute, I just told you this. So lots of things like not touching the yellow knob to pull the release, you know, learning and, and understanding how to manage from a production standpoint, keeping things moving and keeping things safe and smooth while giving the veteran the patience and the time to really know how to best, you know, make them comfortable so that they're going to have the best experience. So that was challenging, just, just understanding that. And honestly, a lot of that was learning through time, trial and error, you know, grabbing someone's foot maybe the wrong way or somebody that can't feel the lower part of their body, but they're having a cramp because they're paralyzed and understanding how to deal with that. Or they would educate us um, how to get them in and out of the glider. But trying to do that in a way where you keep things going. So that was a big challenge. And over over time, the, the Naval Medical Center came to trust us to the degree that we were able to take photos and use them and videos and to where we are today, where we post on social media all the time. So that was a curve and it took a while, but we're happy to have gotten to where we are. Yeah, I, I love seeing those pictures. That they say a lot. What are some of the benefits to veterans from this experience? I think the main thing that they get out of it is a sense of control that may not have been in their life for some time. Also a feeling of adrenaline that they maybe haven't had for some time, but with peacefulness, um, those two things together bring rejuvenation to somebody. You know, the whole world spends their life planning vacations and recreation and fun and days off and, you know, going and doing fun things. That's why we all fly because it's fun. Well, for a veteran or anybody who's dealing with trauma and injuries, that's not such an easy thing when you're first in, in that mode of trying to deal with it. There are some wonderful examples of resilience and strength from people who've learned how to cope with their injuries and how to cope with their you know anxiety and PTSD and go, have gone on to thrive despite it or even because of it or with it. So what happens is I think when they come out and they experience our event, they leave knowing a couple of things. One, they can have fun. If they haven't had fun in a really long time, they leave knowing that was fun. I can have fun. So that spurs them on to do other fun things. Number two, if they haven't had a sense of control, you know, taking that stick, using the rudder pedals, being up there and flying and being able to follow instructions, especially for somebody with a brain injury, the fact that they can listen and follow instructions is a big deal. We see this a lot. And for somebody who was in the military around a lot of aircraft, they tell us that their experience in the military with aircraft was more violent. It, they're loud, um, they're shaking, especially if they were on helicopters, and that they like the adrenaline in the glider, but this peace that it brings, they literally tell us it did something to my brain. I don't know what it just did, but it did something. 
and they love it. So there's rejuvenation, recreation, and the results that any one of your listeners knows fully well from having a day off and going and doing something fun. So you take that and if you are struggling in your life because you don't get a lot of opportunities to do fun things and you you are in pain or you have anxiety and you're depressed, to come out and have that lifted off of you is really thrilling. And I think that's how we walk away. I was just going to ask you, what are some of the best comments you've heard from the veterans after flying? Oh my gosh, there's so many. Sometimes they'll tell us something and I'll say, wait, I have to go get paper and write that down. And can I use that? Because their statements are so fantastic. I I mean, obviously it's great to hear this is the best day of my life. When a veteran tells you this is the best day of their life, there's nothing better than that. One guy, not that long ago, was right before the virus. He turned to us before he left and he said, you know what that flight just did for me? And we said, well, what? We'd love to hear your comments. And he said, that flight just reminded me that life is good. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty amazing to hear that. You know, and, and then on the other side of that, there was a guy that came out once and he was in a foul mood when he was there and he went up and flew and he landed and he was really thrilled when he came down and got out of the glider. And he said to me, I got to tell you something. And I said, okay, what? And he goes, well, I got into a big fight this morning uh, before I got on the bus to come here because the VA hospitals bring the veterans out in vans. And he goes, I got into a big fight and I was really in a bad mood, which was evident. It was obvious that he was. And he said, I feel so great after that flight. I am so calmed down. I'm not mad anymore. And I actually think I owe that person an apology. Oh, my. So those are transformative statements. And those are things that, you know, we just love to hear. You know, most of the veterans tell us when they leave, I wish all veterans could experience this because they want to share this with other people. And I think pilots can relate to that because pilots like to share flying with other people. So imagine you're a veteran, you have that camaraderie with other veterans, and now you know you have empathy for other people who are struggling and you come out and you experience this really fun soaring flight and they want other veterans to experience this. So our goal uh, going forward is to just be able to keep doing this program and be able to get more veterans in the air. What do the recreation therapists tell you about your events? Well, they do say it's the number one requested recreation therapy activity at the VA hospitals. So in California, yeah, in Southern California, there's surfing, sailing, hiking, kayaking, uh, equine therapy. There's all sorts of wonderful opportunities for veterans. And they say that it's the number one requested activity. And the other thing is one of the VA hospitals that specializes in dealing with blindness in veterans or, you know, veterans who've lost, lost some sight, they use our program as sort of a carrot to bait them to go into their program at the VA. So for example, let's say somebody's on a fence, they're calling the VA, they're, they're pondering whether they're going to go seek help. The intake operator on the phone uses the idea that they get to go soaring as the lure and they've been successful doing that. So people have actually signed up to go be willing to go through the program at the VA hospital just so that they can go out for the soaring flight. 
And that's pretty fun to hear. That's pretty awesome. How could people help out the program? What can they do? Well, we would appreciate all the help we can get. Uh, We are a small nonprofit. We rely on generous gifts from anyone in the community who wants to participate. We have two websites right now. One is our nonprofit website, which I ask everybody to go check out. And that is SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. And that website is our nonprofit website. It focuses on our missions. Uh, We also have a glider STEM program, which hopefully we get to talk about that at another occasion. Uh, But you can see the work that we do. Click on the veterans page. There's also a donation page. And there's lots of great information and videos on SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. The other website is our longtime website, which is just SoaringAcademy.org. And that has a lot of content about our flight school and for flight training. That site will eventually be morphed over into the flight school page of the nonprofit missions website. But didn't want people to be confused about that. So go to the SoCalSoaringAcademy.org website to check it out and support. There's a lot of great information on there. There is the missions page. You can click on veterans and it explains a lot about our program. There's some video on there and there's a donation page and you can make a contribution. You can write a check. You can use Apple Pay, Google Pay, ACH Debit. You can support us in other ways. Um, Post about us on social media. Follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and we appreciate that type of support as well. Um, You can also send a check. The address is on our website. And we're trying to raise about fifty to sixty thousand dollars so that we can take uh, over two hundred veterans flying in twenty twenty one. Aviation is expensive, and we always it's kind of like risk reward. Um, It's an expensive activity, but the rewards and the outcomes that we see are so over the top fantastic that everybody who participates and helps us out and becomes a supporter and a booster, we're so grateful for the gifts, even small gifts help. People don't realize, you know, just to be able to buy water and ice and we like it all, the big gifts, the little gifts, whatever you can do to just become part of our community. We don't forget you. And it's, you know, it takes all of us to pull this off and make this happen. It's not just a small, a couple of us, it's a group. And I think that's the other thing that that makes a difference. Everybody in our organization who participates as a volunteer, all the pilots, these are really professional people who are retired airline pilots. They're, they work for NASA. They fly, fly for NASA. They are retired military pilots. They currently work in aerospace or they're other professionals, engineers, architects, and they dedicate their time to help us out to pull these events off. So They support with their time. Uh, Most of our volunteers and most of our customers who become volunteers, they're also donors. It it takes a lot to make this all happen. So we just love as many people as possible to be part of what we do. And thank you for allowing us to, to say that to everybody and to everybody listening. Please join us and check out our website. We're really grateful for the, for the support. And it also helps to spread the word around the world and in general aviation that look what you can do through soaring. I mean, there is a difference. There are things in general aviation. There are small nonprofits are doing amazing things in flying. But as I've mentioned, the comments we hear from the veterans, 
you all know as soaring pilots, there's something different about flying in lift with no engine, interfacing with mother nature, the peace of the sound, yet it's exhilarating. You know, we're in Los Angeles, we're in the desert floor over the over the mountains, you know, bringing a veteran up to 12,000 feet in lift, and then you can see the ocean and Catalina Island peeking out. Uh, those are life-changing moments. It's very different from being in a powered plane, you know, motoring along through the sky. There's something artistic about it. It's a nature sport. And it's something that if everybody joins us as a booster, supporter, contributor in whatever way, we're grateful for all the ways. Um, it does help in general to show the world, look what we as a, as a group, not we as the Soaring Academy, but we as a community of pilots who love gliders and soaring, look what we can do together for people, for veterans who are struggling. Absolutely. Julie, thank you so much for being on the podcast. But, you know, I want to especially thank you for everything you all are doing for the veterans. It is truly an amazing program and keep up the good work. Oh, thanks, Chuck, for letting me talk about it and really appreciate it. Appreciate all the support out there. In all my flying experiences, it's always been loud. Or roller coasters in the belly, it's always been loud and bumpy and violent. And that's kind of what your brain is expecting when you're up there. But in this, it's completely different because as soon as you detach from the plane, almost all the noise just goes away, but you're still feeling that excitement. So it's like your brain can't really click at first. It's like a good kind of fear, but also an exciting amount of fear. And it's like your belly is going in up and down, just like with the G-forces, but your brain still hasn't clicked in, thinking that something bad is happening. So it's like it's actually so damn calm and peaceful, <laughs> but at the same time exciting. It's just... I, I can't, I can't even explain it. It's amazing. This is so much fun. I thank you guys so much for doing this because, I mean, God, this is better than any roller coaster, anything else. I mean, I've been on helicopters, Chinooks, Blackhawks, all of them just violent, shaky. They're fun, but it's violent. With this, it's just, and it just happens. So, Brian, for therapeutic benefit to veterans, you this your first time out here seeing this? Uh, this is actually my second time, but I remember this one. The first time around, I didn't remember. It was a while ago, and I was still being dumb. But uh, this time around, I'm actually doing the program the right way, and I can actually remember things this time. Last time, I, I, I wasn't with the program. I was still acting like a kid. This time around, I'm doing it the right way, which is yeah, like huge, because now I'm experiencing this in a sober mind. <laughs> That's why I'm like stuttering because <laughs> my brain's still trying to wrap around it. Because I mean, this was just, you can have so much fun and you don't need any substances. It's just such an amazing experience. And this, it was an all natural high. That's what it is, an all natural high. It was amazing. Uh, hi, my name is Juan Carlos Goff, former Marine. I'm out here with the West Los Angeles VA. Um, I came out here with a purpose today to um, enjoy myself. Uh, I've been working hard, completely exhausted, and it's kind of tough for us at times to uh, take time for ourselves. And Soaring Academy surely did it for me. Uh, left me in tears by the end of it. It was quite an experience in the Marines. I actually worked in aviation, uh, never got to fly a plane, and 
and my pilot uh, for the soaring for the gliders was, was a Marine himself. And um, it was just a connection between him, me, the sky, the earth. Um, it was a beautiful moment. So I just wanted to say thank you very much to all these donors. This is an opportunity that I never thought I would have. So I'm Raymond Espinoza and I'm a certified peer support specialist and I get to work with the homeless veteran population. And so I've been fortunate enough to come up here oh, probably about eight or nine times over the past three years and I can definitely say that I have seen a night and day difference in so many veterans that I've been able to bring up here. Um, you know, veterans, and, and especially when they're homeless, sometimes the public can become an enemy. You know, they're, they're looked down upon, um, ignored, treated as less than human. And every time we've ever come up here, in addition to just the amazing ability to go gliding, which the veterans absolutely love, um, you know, Julie and her staff has always treated the veterans with so much honor and respect that it literally has helped some of them be a part of a community again. And it, and it starts off with just a small community here, but it grows. And, and I have seen firsthand veterans that um, before coming up here and getting this experience, they would, um, they would keep to themselves, sit in their apartment all day and drink or, you know, that type of thing. And, you know, I catch up with them afterwards, you know, one, two, three months down the road and ask them how they're doing. And some of them are volunteering, some of them are going out and actually becoming a part of their community because it helps them realize that they are a part of the community now. It's not them versus the community or anything like that. Um, so it's just an amazing experience. Uh, I can't say enough great things about this and um, you know what, what Julie and her staff does for these veterans. So uh, thank you very much. And now Soaring Tales with Dale. Author and glider pilot Dale Masters brings us another story today and this one is called Class A Experience. It was a balmy December day, which we have in Southern California. It was just clear and beautiful, and we went up and got in wave, blue wave, and uh, we're climbing great. But we had, uh, you know, it, was, it gets a little boring when you're sitting up in blue wave, just sitting there and looking for something to do. We decided to see if we could migrate, and there's there are bigger mountains about 60 miles away that we thought we could probably get to in the wave, but it was blue wave, and then we saw a lenticular begin to form downwind of those mountains. So we went for it. Uh, that was fine, but it, that was the mistake because it was too late in the day. And as we went that way in the wave, we just kept getting higher and that cloud kept getting bigger. And we got there and I, real, I realized, oh yeah, it's kind of late. I looked back, oh boy, it was time to hurry, hurry home. So now we're probably 50, maybe 60 miles out and realize we have to dive toward home as fast as possible because it's December and the sun goes down at four o'clock. Well, we had gone up without jackets because it was a balmy day and the lift was so great and it just kept increasing. And now the lenticular is spread all the way back to our place, but we have to go right back through all that lift to get home into a headwind. And we ended up going... 100 knots indicated, 17,000 feet, that's uh, close to 200 miles an hour. 
18,000 feet, and we just holding the nose down into the wind to get back, we wound up at 19,000 feet with no oxygen, no jackets in December, and it was just about dark when we got to the airport. Timing. We left too late and turned back too late and got back too late. Thank you, Dale, for another soaring tale. And now we join Daniel Sazen for our tips and techniques segment now on Soaring the Sky. Daniel Sazen, welcome back to the podcast. Glad to have you. Well, glad to be here, Chuck. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I believe a congratulations is in order on your new instructor rating. <laughs> Indeed. I... Um, I received a, a grant from the SSA to to complete it, and I've completed it in uh, October with uh, Randy Rickard was the examiner. Eric Mann signed me off, and you know the, the, these guys and plus uh, many other folks along the way have uh, got me over the hump. Much appreciated. Well, I have to so, ask you, how was that compared to your private test? Oh, it's very different. Um, the the there's a lot more that goes into it. The for one, you have to take two writtens. You have to take the fundamentals of instruction, and you have to take uh, just a general kind of knowledge written. And you know, the fundamentals of instruction is very different. It's just it's more you know like psychology and education oriented. Uh, so it's how to teach, right? And uh, and the, the the general written, in many ways, it's a lot like the private written, except much more detail and you know they're they're just you have to go into greater depth in the things that you know you know. Um, but then beyond that, uh, you're you go and you have to get signed off uh, to take your uh, to do the the practical, and the practical is also again it's very it's very different because. The the most of the focus is the in the oral, and the oral can last anywhere between four and seven eight hours. And my case oh, wow. is about four and a half hours. Oh yeah, no, it's it's a whole day affair. And uh, and there's a couple components to that. I mean, again, there's the teaching component, and the, the the really the big thing is can you go and you teach all of the the range of things what it takes to become an airman, right? So the kinds of things that um, you know the the examiner will expect that or the inspector sometimes, you know, in my case, it was with an examiner with the DPE. Um, but they'll expect you to be able to go and, and explain all the things that uh, you, know, you need to know and in a way that shows that you can teach it to someone else. And then they have you make several lesson plans. Uh, you know, like in my case, it was uh, basically spin prevention and awareness and pre-flight and uh, cross-country flying. So, and cross-country flying from the perspective of getting a rating, not like, you know, going, doing big, rich missions or anything like that. So it's like, you know, like, how do you plan a cross-country flight as a, as a beginning cross-country pilot? And so that, that's, that's where most of the focus was. The actual flying part is um, not all that hard, uh, at least it shouldn't be, you know, because, you know, like it just... You know, I mean, different examiners are different, I suppose, and different tests are different, and different pilots are different. Uh, but the 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 big thing the examiner wants to do with you is basically go and put you in a couple of different positions and see how far you're going to let it go, and can you extract yourself out of those situations. And 
for me, it wasn't that hard because, you know, I've flown quite a bit and, and like I've flown with other people and I've flown my, you know, a lot myself. So, you know, like I have a pretty good sense as to what I can make the glider do. So that the flying component was pretty straightforward, but the, the you know, the, the oral and the, the, the exams, they were very thorough and that's been a, a significant process. Let's put it that way, but I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad I've gotten it complete. I'm thankful for all the support along the way. And I look forward to, uh, you know, to take advantage of it and, you know, helping people out along the way. So have you given that first lesson yet? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I've flown with, you know, I've done, I don't know, uh, some like about nine or 10 flights with folks, but you know, none, none of those flights were, I mean, the thing is, is the kinds of things I'm doing are things that I've done before, really. I mean, uh, my, my, for example, I, I did, three flights with a fellow last weekend to give him a, a check out on our club grove. Well, I used to be a check pilot, you know, in my club and well, I still am <laughs> by, by, by definition. And uh, so I've, I've checked people out and, in, in you know, in uh, the two place gliders before, because it's, you know, we, we were not doing basic training. So, but in, in many respects, I'm still doing all the things, you know, and the, the, the kinds of things that I was, the kinds of teaching I was doing, I didn't need to be an instructor really uh, in a technical sense, but it was much better to be one. And so in a sense, so I just came out on a weekend, kept doing my thing and people were slightly more excited to, to, to listen to me because I was an instructor kind of, but you know, <laughs> right? it's, I don't know. Um, it's, it's kind of entertaining in that way. Um, but no, I mean the you know the nature of the the kind of club I'm at, uh, you know the most of the kind of stuff we do is more the advanced stuff and coaching and things like that. So, you know we're we have quite a number of folks that will fly with other people, and uh, the, you know you don't you don't have to be an instructor. But you know there's things that you you do need to be an instructor for. For example, um, for you know to conduct BFRs. And you know, so like I'll I'll do those every once in a while. And uh, and the other thing is there there's kind of a need in, in my club, despite the fact that we don't do basic training, that, that there is some need for remedial training or a higher level of kind of assessment for certain folks. And so that, you know, like we're, we're trying to kind of develop some of those resources along the way. I'm not looking to do a lot of uh, the, the primary stuff, largely because of the fact that Blairstown has an excellent flight school for gliders and, you know, Jersey Ridge Soaring does the basic training and, you know, and they're they're doing a great job, and so the club kind of picks up from there, and that's kind of the, the kind of stuff I would like to do. Well, congratulations again, and thank you so much for your contribution to the soaring community. Well, you know, I, I much appreciate that, you know, but my contribution is not in completing my test; it's uh, it's going to be in uh, in actually flying with people. Right? <laughs> well, I know you'll be doing that. Well, and speaking of contribution, you know, you put out a blog that I really enjoy, and. We've had you on before and you've talked about it, but you do have a new blog from the Soaring Economist, and I believe it was on Halloween, right? Yeah, I had a, you know, I actually haven't written as much as I would like in recent times, but I had, I finally had a flight in the Duck Hawk um, in a little over, uh, a little about two weeks ago now. And uh, it was on Halloween, and it's kind of really funny uh, to, to talk about it now because, you know, it's 10 days. Uh, well, not quite, but pretty, you know, like almost like a, like a little over a week after the election. 
and it's just uh, really uh, it's kind of weird talking about the flight because one of the major components about the flight was uh, how there was all these temporary flight restrictions uh, in our area and you know having to kind of navigate the airspace by virtue of uh, Trump campaigning. Uh, in, oh, exactly. Yeah. So um, you know, like it, it, so it, it's just amazing how you know how much has changed since Halloween, right? Uh, in the time that we're talking about this, but uh, but yeah, it was, it was a very nice flight. The fact that it happened to be on Halloween gave us some more things to think about. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so, you know, we're in this part of the country and you're not too far from me. We're in fall and we're going towards winter. How were the conditions that day? Well, the conditions were actually surprisingly pretty good. Usually later into October, you know, the, you don't really expect all that much from the thermal weather. But we, uh, you know, the, and the, 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 the day ended up being actually quite a bit better than forecast and you know it was supposed to be like 4,000 feet in blue give or take so i just sort of figured i'll just kind of poke around uh locally but uh you know then as uh, when i got out to the airport and looked up and you know when i did my first couple uh flights with folks in the morning that day you know i was surprised to see there were queue and i thought that they would go and they would uh wither away you know as the as the day kind of heated up but no they actually hung around and got better. And so when I took off, I was, you know, very delighted to see that it was not 4,000 feet at best in blue, but more like 4,500 feet in nice cumulus clouds all over the place. And and beyond that, they were actually quite reliable, you know, like, and that's one of the things I like to talk about in my writing, but, you know, the fact that every cloud worked <laughs> uh, gave, gave quite a bit of assurance there. Um, and so, you know, and then kind of figured, well, you know, the as Kathy Williams says, if you can stay up, you can go cross country. <laughs> so, you know, just looked out, looked up the valley, and saw a nice uh, line of queue, and off I went. So, how far did you venture out that day? I did uh, two, like effectively two out returns that were about a little over fifty k each. So. You know, I mean, I, I think OLC gave me about 250 kilometers in total when you factor in all the little six legs. But, you know, I mean, I did kind of two short cross-country trips in a sense. So I had a question for you. I forgot to ask you the last time we were talking about the mm. duck hawk. But so what's the history on the duck hawk as far as are there a lot of them around? Well, um, they're... No, it's it's a wonderful, wonderful airplane. It was uh, built up in... Uh, it's an American-built 15-meter well, you know, it's 50 to 1, apparently. I mean, it hasn't been actually truly measured, but uh, that's, you know, it, it, perform, it performs quite well. Uh, let's put it that way. And uh, it was built up in Bend, Oregon. Uh, Greg Cole designed it, the uh, same guy who designed the Sparrowhawk. And, uh, it, it, you know, it was meant to be a pure 15-meter racing glider. Uh, so no engine, no tips, no nothing like that. Among other things, uh, you know, it, it, it had certain really interesting kind of design characteristics. For one, it was just like the, the Sparrowhawk, it was built out of pre-preg carbon fiber, which is, you know, it's, it, it's a um, higher grade carbon fiber in a sense. And if you can think of it that way, kind of like, you know, have different grades of steel, right? Well, in the same way in carbon fiber, there's different levels of it. And what, uh, what, uh, Pre-pride carbon fiber lets you do uh, is well you shape it you know shape it put it in a, in, a, in, a, in an oven I think it's called an autoclave and uh, it's much lighter and stronger than than carbon, regular carbon fiber that's wet laid up so 
Um, and there, there's a number of things that come out of this. For one, um, the, the aircraft is very light and strong, so Greg was able to go and make the wing very thin, and you know it's got it's only 80 square feet. Uh, of wing, so it's not very. If you look at the the pictures of it, it really doesn't look like all that much of a wing, you know. So it's it's very light, it's very strong. Uh, he was able to, you know, really push the the the, the structures quite hard. But then, among other things, uh, it was it it has the the strength. It was was designed for very high performance, but also for very particular kinds of soaring that other gliders are not as optimized for. So the the Duck Hawk was optimized to do wave flying, and which it hasn't done yet, uh, and I'm sure I'm sure at some point will. And and it was optimized to do this by virtue of having a very high red line and very high maneuvering speed. So the glider has a maneuvering speed of 165 knots, oh, wow. and the red line on the glider is 200 knots. And the the other thing about the red line is it's limited not by it's not limited by flutter. Well, at some point it is, but to, it basically it's it's limited by the fact that at 200 knots it will not survive the air brakes opening. Got to help you if they were to open at that speed, though. Man, that oh. would be very <laughs> very disconcerting, you know. Um, but that and, and the 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 basically the red line remains constant all the way up to through 24,000 feet. Oh. So, so most gliders, the 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 red, you know the the indicated red line backs yeah. off um, as as you get higher. So it you know it it was really I mean it was designed to just tear you know tear along the minden wave at ungodly speeds. And the other thing it was designed to do, and this is something I'm very interested in, is dynamic soaring in you know, in a number of different ways. I mean it has uh, it's a very strong wing. It's got a very tolerant airfoil. You can do you can really push the the wing quite hard you can make big changes in it and the, the airflow that seems to stick very nicely and it's got electric flaps which is very unusual for uh, a sailplane uh, so and by virtue of having electric flaps morgan sandercock uh who was part of the the Perland project and was very much uh, affiliated with uh, the factory at the time he designed a program that made them auto, uh, made he designed a computer program that makes them automatic so Basically, the the, um, the Duck Hawk, you can just click a switch, and the you know you don't touch the flaps anymore. And when you're doing a lot of uh, maneuvering, you know when you're pulling pulling uh, back and pushing forward, all those pitch changes uh, they come with corresponding uh, changes to the angle of attack, and they and then they result in changes. Uh, they they need uh, resulting flap changes, and the the Duck Hawk does an outstanding job of that. So those are just a number you know, of distinct thoughts that come to mind. And uh, so it's a very cool airplane. Only three Duck Hawks have been built. The only other one that I know that is owned by anyone else, I think the the, the third one is owned by Greg, uh, you know, but uh, the second one is owned by a fellow out in Washington, Chris Young. But uh, it's a nearly one-of-a-kind sailplane. But, I, you know, I, yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't designed to be mass-produced then or... Um, I, I mean, like, I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure about that. I mean, it's, uh, I think that, that Greg Cole kind of struck out there a little bit, uh, you know, that I think that if people wanted them, you know, a couple years ago, that he, he certainly would have built them. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not sure it was designed to be mass produced in any other manner, more so than any other kind of glider is. I mean, gliders are just not mass produced aircraft, but 
Um, it just, you know, for a variety of reasons, it just didn't seem to catch on. But it's, uh, you know, it's not 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 from a lack of performance. <laughs> Assuredly, yeah. the thing uh, goes very well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what you're telling me about it. I'm like, man, it would be really cool if there was a few more of them around. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's a very special sailplane. I, 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 you know, in some ways, you know, the way I kind of look at it, uh, it's I think of it kind of like the Akafleek sailplanes. You know, the uh, if you're if you're at all familiar with them, the there, there's these gliders that were uh, built in you know in Germany by engineering schools, and they 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 go and they they try all sorts of new designs and you know all sorts of novel ideas, and uh, so if you ever go out to those uh, those aero clubs, you see all sorts of really cool aircraft out there. You know these kind of one of a kind sailplanes, and in in some ways, I kind of look at the Duck Hawk in a similar way. That the the glider the the glider was an excellent proof of concept for what prepreg can do and what auto flaps can do, among other things. I mean, he did. There's a lot of other things that came, that were you know, interesting and novel ideas with the sailplane. But I mean, I, I'm I'm still surprised that there aren't auto flaps in all sailplanes nowadays because there there does seem to be it's it's just such a easy way to get quite a bit more performance out of these gliders but you know i thought the duck hawk showed that pretty nicely spend more time flying and not have to worry about the flaps well, yeah and the, the thing about the flaps is you know a lot of people really don't understand how to use them correctly and in in some way you know and i i i'm actually one of the very few people but uh, probably the only person that's ever learned how to use flaps by observing a computer do it first <laughs> <laughs> So and uh, and you know because when I, I the the Duck Hawk is the first flap glider that I've flown and uh, and then since then you know I've flown the LS6 and the LS3 and the Lock 17 so I've flown a number of other flap gliders. The thing about flaps, uh, a lot of people think that they're associated with speed and you know that's one part of it, but the other aspect is you also have to deal with um, the with g loading. So if you in between. Your airspeed and your and your g loading that that affects your angle of attack uh, on the wing and ultimately flaps are you, you, they are they're adjusted or optimized by angle of attack and so if you're going 100 knots and you pull pull hard well at that point you need to be deploying some flaps along the way whereas a lot of you know, a lot of people they just follow the placards on the airspeed indicator so if they you know they'll They'll pull up, and now they'll be going up in a climb in the glider. And then, as they go through the speed range, you know, the, through the speed that that are on the the placard, they'll start click, 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 click through the flaps until they slow down to the speed that they're going in. But the the proper usage of the flaps is much more complicated than that. It actually more mirrors the motion of the stick. So, you know, if you start pulling back, you got to be you have to be pulling with the flaps at the same time. And then, um, and then when you back off now you kind of slowly start extending them and then when you pull through the turn like if you're entering a thermal then you got to pull on them pretty hard again and and to get that process just right is actually quite a bit of work uh and you know you have to time it just right and you got to really put in the just the right amount of control um and you know like in the mo and also mo most flap gliders they really don't do a really good job of giving you that much throw and they're they're kind of heavy at high speeds and things like that so but like the LS3 actually has a flap handle that's quite you know quite nice and I was able to use to fly more like the Duck Hawk flaps but I I didn't do it all the time because you know it's you you really have to pay attention to it in order to 
to to do a pretty good job of it. So the flaps are, you know, that it's beyond just like you know making sure that you put them in the right detent. Yeah. <laughs> um, if to get the flaps to work, especially if you're doing a lot of pull, pulls and pushes, you know, if you if you if you do it right, it's a very meaningful conservation of energy along the way and. Having seen how how it actually works, it's much harder than people think. Can you follow through with the flaps? Then you said you learned with the auto flaps. Can you kind of follow through as as you're flying? Oh, sure, absolutely. Um, no, I mean they're they're going off all the time, pretty much. I mean, you know the there it's an electric it's a electric flap, so I mean you can you can hear the motor you know by, behind you, and you can just hear it go click 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 clack click click clack you know <laughs> behind you. Right. And uh, when you, and when you pull, I mean you can hear them just deploy, and you can feel it in the glider. Um, and in the beginning, it felt a little weird uh, because they're coming down right at you know right as you're pulling, right? And um, but then pretty quickly, you know, the start is the, it, there was this distinct feeling, man, this feels nice, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, man, it feels right. So like, you know, when you, you pull harder into the thermal, you know, you can feel it dig into the, you know, d- you know, you can feel the flaps dig into the turn. And so, no, you can, you, you certainly, you most certainly feel, feel them doing their bit there. That's for sure. And, uh, and when you're cruising along, I mean, it's kind of like a suspension system, you know, you can sort of hear them uh, doing their business behind you. Well, thanks again for joining us on the podcast. Sounds like, sounds like you're still doing some flying as the weather changes. Do you fly all winter there? Yeah. Oh, sure. No, I mean, uh, at Blairstown, we fly all year and uh, we have the, the wonderful, you know, we're, we're, we're very lucky because our grass runway, we operate on the grass parallel to the pavement is more, it's kind of gravelly. So it really, it drains really, really well. So it, it like, it takes quite a bit to, to get it to the point where the grass isn't, is too not possible to operate off of. And, and then further, um, we, in the winter, very not that many people go and fly off the pavement. So, if, you know, if there's grass or if it's muddy or something like that, and we really want to fly, we can always uh, tow off the pavement, even though we don't do that very often. So, we're at Blairstown. We're basically the only limitation is whether people feel like flying or not, <laughs> or you know, yeah, that's about right. it, actually. And uh, yeah, no, I mean, no, we we fly all winter, and it's. Uh, it's a lot of fun, uh, and actually, flying off the pavement's a lot of fun. You know, I think you guys do that on Cumberland, right? Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty much strictly that. I mean, there's some guys that land in the grass once in a while, but we really don't take off in the grass. You know, I've I've always, uh, you know, the, it's one of those kind of funny things. Uh, the people who only uh, fly off of grass, they seem to have this sort of fear of uh, landing or taking off right. on the pavement, but. Uh, I've always thought it's really, really nice. I mean, uh, you know, you take off much quicker and it's nice and smooth. Right. And when you come into land, you get that nice squeeze, you know, nice uh, uh, right. wheel kiss on the ground. It's, uh, it's, it's, very, it's very, very nice. You know, highly recommend it. I was able to get up uh, last week for a little bit. It, there really wasn't any lift going on. It's kind of blue and, and uh, it's smooth, but it, it, was, it was great to get back up in the air. And there was a little bit of fall colors yet, so. Sure. Do you guys normally tow over to the um, to to the ridge uh, just by the the river out there, or do you guys normally go elsewhere? Usually, go on top of the ridge. Yeah, we 
do a turn there over the railroad yard and get up on top of the ridge and usually release there. Yeah. That's a very, very nice ridge out there. It, uh, well, you know, that it's, uh, it's a little disconcerting in the sense that you, I don't think that you can quite make uh, the airport uh, from Ridgetop. Well, maybe, well, I don't know. You guys can educate me, but. Uh, yeah, you, you can. If you're getting low on the ridge and you, and you jump off the ridge, you got, you got plenty of altitude to get back. Oh, wonderful! It, uh, you know, because I kind of looked over my shoulder out there and I'm like, oh man, that, that looks a little, a little, little, little dicey to get out there. But it's got beautiful fields at the base of the ridge, you know. So it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful place to fly. I'd love to take a tow over with you guys one of these days. It is. You, you have to come over. You're welcome anytime. It'd be great to have you. It, it is a beautiful place to fly, and I am excited because our club is starting to get very active again, and we've got some new members, some new instructors, and um, we were uh, a little slow there for a while, but yeah, we're, we're getting active again, and I'm excited. Wonderful. Well, good luck to you guys. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel, for joining us again. Always nice to have you on the podcast. Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And keep up the great work on your blog. I'm enjoying reading those, so keep them coming. <laughs> well, thank you. You know, it's uh, re- you know, readers like you make it worth it. So, thank you. Thank you. And that is the soaringeconomist.com. Indeed. All right, Daniel. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Have a good night. And thank you for joining us for another episode here on Soaring the Sky. And I do especially want to thank all those veterans, the ones that are serving now, and those that have served. We do greatly appreciate your service. Please join us next time for another episode here on Soaring the Sky. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi, just drop Chuck a line at chuck at soaringthesky.com. Or you can send us a note on the website, soaringthesky.com. Also, if you're a pilot, we want to hear your story. Just send us an email and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next week for another great guest and adventure on Soaring the Sky. Music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Voiceover work was provided by Michelle Perez. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton.